welcome to Cohen Esri Apartment Investors, our podcast on apartment investing. My name is Lydia Kincaid, and I'm the fund manager for our market rate funds, which includes CEAI Fund 23, Fund 24, and Fund 25. We have Lee Harris, our president and CEO, and our special guest, our vice president of acquisitions, Matthew Bonindi. Thank you both for being here today. Today, we are going to talk through some creative deal structures. Uh, now, in order to make things work in this industry, it takes a lot of pencil and paper, um, as many of you probably know, to figure out how to make a deal work um, and how to get to a closing. Um, all sorts of different ways that we can utilize debt and equity. So to lay the groundwork a little bit for everyone who's listening in general, um, the capitalization stack in total for a transaction that we might do includes 60 to 70% leverage. So that's a loan that we are taking out in order to acquire the property and make the changes that we've described in earlier podcasts um, to make the whole deal work. Um, we also, on top of that debt, then we have primary equity or a PEP, primary equity provider. They invest 90% of the equity required. Um, then finally, we have our co-invest funds, which are the funds that I managed that I mentioned earlier. Um, that's considered sponsor equity. Um, and our co-invest funds are primarily individual investors. Um, another word for that might be retail investors, um, but generally individuals who are participating in a portfolio of companies um, that we are acquiring on their behalf. So if the numbers were to, were to work out, let's say the all-in purchase price for an apartment community is $40 million. If we're utilizing 67% leverage, our loan would be just under $27 million. The primary equity provider invests about 30% of the capital needed or $12 million. Then our co-invest fund provides that remaining equity required or 10% of the equity required, which in this case is about 1.3 million. So directionally, that's the way that we put the pieces together, if you will, for our transactions that we close. Today, we're going to discuss several iterations of this type of deal structure and how market conditions impacts the way that we structure deals as well. Um, so Lee, could you start us off describing the, the current landscape and how it's shifted over time? And after you share that with us, then, then Matt, we'll start talking deal-specific details here. The landscape is a mess. Uh, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Uh, and that is, it's been caused by the Fed, uh, who printed too much money, uh, didn't turn the spigot off quickly enough, has gone crazy raising interest rates. Uh, and this, unfortunately, is, has trickled down to the apartment market and really all markets for that matter. But uh, we have interest rates on the, on the upswing. Uh, we've been in a, a position where cap rates have uh, dropped significantly over the last three or four years. Uh, I can remember five and a half, six percent, six and a half percent cap rates. Uh, now we're seeing cap rates as low as three and a half, four percent. And unfortunately, there's been no capitulation yet in the valuation uh, perspective on the part of sellers. Uh, <clears throat> that I think will change as uh, the Fed continues to be more aggressive with their rate increases. Uh, obviously, we're talking short-term rates at the Fed, but that does have a, a, a detrimental effect on long-term rates. Ultimately, there may be some adjustments in spreads. 
but uh, bottom line is we see an, a, an increase steadily uh, have been and continue to, to see this increase in uh, interest rates. Now, uh, where we are at the very moment is in a position of negative leverage. What's negative leverage? Well, uh, if you have a cap rate, a capitalization rate that's, say, 4% uh, on a deal, and you have an interest rate on the loan that's 5%, you're, you have negative leverage of, of 1%. And that that assumes that we're only looking at negative leverage on the basis of an interest rate and not a loan constant. Uh, the loan constant takes into consideration the amortization of, of the loan uh, in addition to the interest rate. So if, a, if the, the, the interest rate is 5%, the loan constant might be 5.5, even 6%, depending on a lot of factors. Uh, I think the industry generally accepts the, the negative leverage terminology as an interest rate factor, not a loan constant factor. So we'll, that's what we'll focus on here. We have equity in the marketplace that is saying, we don't like to play this negative leverage game. Now, as Matt can probably tell you, because rents have been increasing so dramatically over the last couple of years, and especially over the last year, uh, if we're in negative leverage on a on a project, uh, it isn't going to be for long, as, it, it, unless we see uh, rents beginning to either go flat or even decline. Now we don't think that's going to happen because there's so much pent up demand for multifamily uh, from the from the renter pool. Uh, we have a short shortage of of rental units both market rate and affordable uh, housing in this country to the tune of millions of units. So uh, I'm not terribly concerned about, uh, about the, about where we are with rents and where rents will go. I think they probably won't increase quite as quickly. And there may be more single family rentals that are more competitive uh, as the single family market cools off. So there's a lot of factors here, but at the same time, uh, we're struggling with this notion of negative leverage where equity, the equity mindset is concerned. And even if we're out of a negative leverage position in six to 12 months, a lot of equity is just uncomfortable with that. Eventually, when the Fed stabilizes uh, their, their process here of trying to control inflation, we believe there probably will be a capitulation uh, event or it'll probably happen over time where sellers say, okay, I'm going to have to, to to set my sights on, on a different valuation for my property when I sell. Uh, right now, we're probably seeing a 10% reduction in values from the peak. But that's probably going to need to be more than a 10% reduction in values uh, to, to really start to see momentum in the sale market again, because I think as Matt will probably tell us, we're seeing a reduction in in the number of properties that are coming on the market and that sale activity, we're seeing more deals fall out of bed, uh, especially because of financing. So that's just kind of a general lay of the land. I threw a lot of things together there and you can understand why uh, the bottom line is it's a big mess. It is a big mess. And, and Matt, I think this is a good time for you. Um, maybe share 
with our audience, how we're adjusting. And also, as Lee mentioned, like what you're seeing on the ground in terms of deal flow. Yeah, sure. So absolutely. Uh, to his point, it is it is certainly a big, big mess. Um, but uh, at the same time, the fundamentals are what they are. And that is very, very strong. In addition to just being millions of dollars, uh, millions of units is short nationwide, we continue to run the deficit. So development, new deliveries aren't keeping pace with the growing demand year over year, and it's exacerbating the problem. Add on top of that, the affordability component, especially in an inflationary environment, and the argument for multifamily investing, multifamily demand uh, more broadly is, is quite strong and is slated to hold uh, well into the future. Uh, but at the moment, we are where we are. Uh, negative leverage is the hot button issue for virtually every equity group, coast to coast, uh, that we are in communication with. Um, so uh, in real time, like we've done in years past, uh, we've been forced to pivot, really, uh, in response to the reality of the market. Uh, we do this in a number of ways. And so I think it might be prudent uh, for our listeners just to walk through some of those uh, right now. When COVID hits, just as an example, uh, we're, we saw sort of what's going on right now, which is a lot of the institutional equity uh, rushes to the sidelines and waits for the dust to settle. Uh, this is a huge opportunity for groups like us uh, to really work our nationwide Rolodex of brokerage contacts and uncover off-market opportunities. Uh, we acquired Tall Oaks out in the Atlanta suburb of Conyers uh, exactly this way. Um, things are changing rapidly uh, on the ground. Uh, so what used to be the standard scenario, I think what you described pretty accurately, Lydia, in your intro, where you would essentially find a property, uh, you'd get a number of, of suitors and lenders to line up for anywhere between 70 to 75 percent uh, leverage, we'd fill the gap with about 25% equity, and that would be the recipe, mainly through the GSEs, Fannie Mae uh, and Freddie Mac. Um, as pricing uh, continued to ramp up with demand increasing uh, and rents growing, um, prices rose, expectations rose on the part of the seller, and we were not able to command uh, the type of leverage uh, in response to the rising pricing. Uh, and so what we did, uh, again, is pivot and started hunting for off-market uh, opportunities, but also uh, market opportunities that had uh, a loan assumption uh, factor. Uh, we acquired Preserve at Westover Hills and Loda Creekside uh, in this way. Uh, basically, what that does is it, it enables us to acquire the property at a lower uh, price point. Uh, so the cost basis is a little bit more uh, uh, compelling uh, for us. Um, onward through COVID um, in the recovery, uh, pricing continued to soar as rents picked up and demand continued uh, to heat up as well. Uh, so we pivoted again and started expanding our network of lenders uh, and financing options to include bridge financing. Uh, bridge financing, meaning that we can increase our leverage all the way up to 80, sometimes 85% uh, of purchase price uh, and fund the renovation dollars uh, through a future funding vehicle that the, the lender uh, controls. Uh, this was sort of the recipe on Champions of Bluegrass out in Kentucky, uh, as well as Andover Park and Carlisle Apartments here in our headquarters market of Kansas City. Uh, obviously, these are floating rate products. So to mitigate the risk, uh, we purchase interest rate caps, one of which we've hit and has started paying out uh, down in Kentucky. Uh, the other two are probably here in the next couple rounds of rate hikes uh, will we'll start proving to be wise uh, 
as well. So overall, yeah, I mean, we're, we have a, a track record over the last seven or eight deals, the vast majority of which have been um, uh, complex and creative capital structures that we've had to piece together, um, either through, through uh, off-market sourcing, uh, loan assumption opportunities, or uh, a combination of loan assumptions and retail syndication on top of uh, an equity tranche from one of our primary equity partners. But this is sort of what we do at Cone Esri is, is pivot to meet the, the moment in the market. Matt, I get asked by uh, potential investors and our current investors how we think about refinancing. Um, can you share how your team looks at opportunities like that and if you plan for them or not, how frequently you look into those sort of scenarios? Sure. One of the more zooming out, uh, this is a, a broader point for, for our platform. One of the things that investors routinely praise us for is that whatever juice uh, is left uh, on our value add business plan assumptions, uh, we do not incorporate that. So that's to say that our returns, our targets don't hinge on the, the fluff. Um, there are a great deal, uh, great many uh, deals in our portfolio that are probably primed for a refinance. Uh, the way that would work is something like this. So we acquire a property, we'll hold it anywhere between five to seven years typically. Our business plan, depending on the size of the property and the rate of turnover on site and in the market generally, probably will be about 40 to 50%. So we envision about 24 months to 36 months of what we call the ramp up period. In that time, uh, we're renovating the exteriors in the first three months and then programmatically going in to renovate and upgrade the interiors, release them out at premium rental rates, and in so doing, reposition the property to compete at a higher uh, a higher uh, NOI. Once we achieve that, uh, we have the ability then to go back to the bank, the lender, uh, and as a new basis, as an income-producing property, uh, have a new a new valuation done, return equity to our partners and to our investors, um, and then move forward uh, on that note. Mm -hmm. So while we have a lot of opportunities to do that, no, we we don't we don't hinge our the upside in our in our projections on on the refinance. Right. I, I, I would I would jump in here and say too that refinancing opportunities uh, are going to be few and far between for the next couple of years at least until we start to see rates uh, reduced. Now there is a uh, an opportunity though for for refi perhaps with HUD. Uh, and once you control, one of the reasons you want to control the product before you work with HUD is the length of time that it can take to get uh, a co-insurance loan closed, typically the 223F program. And there is there, there are some limitations using the F program to uh, bear in mind for cash out. Uh, you can only borrow 80% if you're pulling cash out instead of the typical 85%, the 223F program is a 35-year amortization. It's a 1.17 debt coverage ratio, uh, but it's it's 80% loan to value uh, if you're pulling cash out 85% if you're not. Now, that's all fine and good. There's a, a, a mortgage insurance premium factor that sticks around forever that's not very desirable. You've got HUD regulations and, and inspections and all that stuff. But today, currently, the the, the differential in interest rate uh, is 60 to 80 basis points. And you're typically talking a, 
a lower loan constant because it's a 35 year amortization period instead of a 30 year uh, amortization period. The loans are are fully assumable. That's the other beautiful thing about it. So you have long-term 35-year fixed rate financing. There's usually a six five four three two one or nine eight seven six five four three two one prepayment penalty. So for holding a property on a shorter term basis, it's not necessarily uh, advantageous. However, if let, let's say we were to buy a property. Uh, and then refinance it in year three with much higher rents and, and net operating income. Uh, our investors want out, and in a couple more years, we put a HUD loan in place. We resyndicate that equity and bring new partners in uh, that step into a loan assumption uh, after year five, let's say. That's a, a nice recapitalization tool to consider. So that's something we're we're looking at carefully. Uh, unfortunately, right now, that differential is, like I said, 60 to 80 basis points. Um, and, and the MIP, mortgage insurance premium, is a is a factor in, in making it uh, not as desirable. But it's still a cheaper loan product. But it's going to take several months to get the loan approved. And that's why you want to be able to control the product. As Matt will tell you, typically... Uh, these deals here to four have been uh, on a pretty fast track to get closed. Uh, so you have to have your equity lined up, you have to have your debt lined up, and you have maybe 45 to 60 days to get it closed. And there's no way to do that with a 223F HUD loan. Now, when I say HUD loan, that's a HUD insured loan. That is not uh, does not mean that there is a, a HUD regulatory element to rents or to uh, qualification by the residents. It's simply a co-insurance loan product, which is one of the reasons that it's it's a bit less expensive in the marketplace. Matt, do you see a lot of opportunities like that these days um, that we can use that sort of structure? We have, um, yeah. I, it, certainly things have slowed down overall, uh, but as, as recently as within the past five weeks, uh, a property under this exact structure Lee just described uh, came available in uh, the San Antonio suburb of Live Oak, where we we acquired uh, in um, in March of this year one of our latest uh, our latest additions to the portfolio. So yeah, we we, we see these largely uh, for us. Those are in in Florida, Atlanta, and the four major Texas markets. Um, uh, but yeah, as recently as within the past four to six weeks. Uh, we've we've vetted out a, a property exactly along those lines. Very interesting. Lee, as we wrap up, is there anything you might share with our listeners, uh, maybe who haven't been through a few cycles like this? What what would you advise them on? Well, the, the, the operative term is cycle. Uh, that's what this is. This is not a permanent uh, affliction, if you will. Uh, this too shall pass. Uh, the, the part that's that, that's really disappointing to me is that none of this needed to happen if if we had a Federal Reserve that that it was doing its job the right way. Uh, so I got to get that little ding in on on our Fed. Uh, but uh, I, th I think the key is margin of safety. And you have to make sure during these uncertain times that whatever deal you do, uh, you're not pressing 
uh, to do a deal just to do a deal, but that you're creating the kind of margin of safety that that you need to manage risk. I've always said I'm a real estate developer that refuses to take risk, but we'll manage risk all day long. And so that's probably because this is cyclical, uh, it may may require us to to sit on our hands for a few months or however long it takes to be patient until things line up the way they're supposed to. Uh, I know that uh, we're trying to to acquire six to eight deals a year, 2,500 to 3,000 units a year. That's not going to happen this year. Uh, may not happen next year. Uh, but uh, we've built our business in such a way there's some margins of safety and we have other ways that, uh, uh, that we move forward as, a, as an organization because we're just not interested in doing doing deals just to do deals. And that's the temptation for a lot of folks that haven't been through these kind of cycles before. They don't build the margins of safety. They're pushing to do deals to to generate fees. Uh, they're unrealistic with their assumptions, uh, projecting ridiculous sort of back-end uh, upside. And I, I think Matt will tell you, he and Ryan Huffman, who's the managing director for Kona's Department Investors, are staying the course when it comes to our uh, standards, and uh, we're just not going to vary from them. Lee, I think that's great advice. Thanks, as always, for your time today. And thanks, Matt, for your insights as well. Glad to have you here with us. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.